Welcome, everyone, to Healing Hope and Restoration. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Howard. And Howard, we are going to start today a series, and we don't know how long this series is going to go, probably till we decide it's done. But we're going to start a series on addiction. Yes, I think uh, in today's society, uh, addiction uh, is at the top of the heap in terms of uh, problems that we're facing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, individuals and as groups in society, addiction is ravaging people's lives and families. It absolutely is. So today we're going to start relatively simple, however complex, by talking about what is addiction. Right. So I, I want to use a definition uh, that I typically use, and we'll break it down and make it simple. This is going to sound a little complex, but we want you to understand that this is not a topic to be taken flippantly. There are no easy answers to it. And the spiritual model alone will not explain it. Uh, I'm not saying Jesus isn't enough. He is. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that, that there are, there are moments in even a believer's life when addiction grabs them where it just doesn't seem to make sense to just trust the the spiritual impact in one's life when biochemically there's a war going on. Absolutely. And Howard, before we jump into that, can we um, identify kind of our credentials and why we're speaking to this topic right now? Yes. So I am certified with the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. I have certification in sex addiction and certification in multiple addictions. And I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor in addition to a certified alcohol and drug counselor. And I specialize in treating primarily adolescents. So Tiffany treats the adolescent side of our clinic and I treat adults. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yes, I'm glad that you mentioned that that there is a reason we can talk about this. (laughs) Okay. So you have a great definition. Um, Addiction is a neuropsychological disorder characterized by a persistent and intense urge to use a drug, alcohol, or in some cases sex, despite substantial harm and other negative consequences. Repetitive use alters brain function in ways that perpetuate cravings and severely weaken self-control. I think that is abundantly clear. So when that starts to happen, the last thing you want to say to someone is, I want you to just quit. <laughs> just, just stop doing it. Mm-hmm. You know this is not working for you, so, so just stop it. Um, so I can remember back in the day, and I'm going way back now, um, in late February, uh, I hit 45 years of sobriety. Um, congratulations. Thank you. I, I was a, a heavy smoker. Um, I was a functional alcoholic, uh, at 20, uh, a doctor diagnosed me with the beginnings of cirrhosis when I was 20 years old, which is when I quit. And, um, I had a life that, uh, you know, was kind of out of control, Mm -hmm. multiple partners and so forth. So 
you know, when I look back on those years, if someone said, just quit, um, go home Friday night and twiddle my thumbs. I was living alone at the time. Um, no, the, the cravings were powerful because the bulldog had been fed once and it wanted to be fed again. And this is where biochemical issues start to come into play. Behavioral issues start to come into play. And then, as we're going to talk about, there's some medical reasons why that happens as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, I haven't struggled with um, a substance use disorder or an addiction of that nature. And so coming from someone who hasn't struggled, I would say I don't think it's that difficult to understand how a habitual habit is not easy to just stop. Because if we reflect on our lives and the habits that we've developed over the course of time, our culture is conditioned to get you hooked on something. And they're not to like, not easily allow you to leave. (laughs) No. And so, you know, I maybe somewhat humorously, but um, perhaps somewhat serious as well. I, I might say to people, well, just stop eating chocolate. <laughs> no. <laughs> just stop eating ice cream. Just stop eating donuts. Stop getting that latte every morning. Um, you know, stop the carbohydrates, you know. Um, you know, and then they start saying, well, that's different. No, it's mm-hmm. coming from the same part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just that what you're doing may not be as immediately harmful in a familial situation or individual situation as substance alcohol or sex can absolutely even binging on you know a television show that you can't seem to turn off um shopping you know there are a lot of behaviors like i said that we can easily engage in so not we're not that far removed none of us are that far removed from having something that um, we're easily hooked on and there's been some studies done uh lynn johnson uh, cited uh, one of those studies in his book, Enjoy Life, uh, which is a book designed to try to help people with um, depression and anxiety. But near the back of the book, he cites a study that uh, began, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago called Epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2018, I attended a conference with ITAP in which this was the part of the keynote speaker's um, topic was looking at epigenetics, meaning that there's a part of our genetic code that can go back four generations relative to behaviors that could be detrimental to our health. Mm -hmm. Uh, They talked about addiction. They talked about diabetes. uh, They talked about other, um, you know, health related issues that can be something that could be traced back at least four generations Mm. and that you could have a predisposition. But if you never unlock the code by doing the behavior, then you just go on and live your life. But once that code has been unlocked or uh, to use a farm illustration, the bars door is open and the cows are out. Uh, Now that's going to run its natural course. So case in point, I would have never thought of drinking. As far as I knew, going back three generations, there was a great uncle on my mom's side and a great uncle on my dad's side 
who had alcohol problems. I mm. uh, wasn't aware of anybody else but those two guys. And I would have never thought of drinking. I would have never thought of carousing and being difficult and all the things that I did until about three weeks prior to my 17th birthday, I took that first drink. Mm. And I remember thinking right away, where's this been all my life? I loved it. I loved the taste. I slammed three in an hour after never having drank before. And it was game on after that wow. all the way up until I was 20. And, you know, in those days you were legal at 18. So I didn't have long to go for, I could buy it myself. And, you know, I'm convinced with what I know now from epigenetics that I opened the barn door mm -hmm. by taking that first drink instead of resisting in the way that I had been brought up instead of saying, no, I choose not to because that's not in the repertoire of my family values or virtues. I decided impulsively in that moment with the guys that I was with, so, yeah, bring it on. Hmm. And once that happened, now I was in a battle yeah. for nearly three years. So it can happen so quickly like that. And, you know, that's why, that's why it's so important to understand this, that if that's happened to you, it's not because, and we talked about this before we came on the air, it's not because, folks, you are a mistake. Mm -mm. It's because you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And that it's not a character flaw in terms of you being permanently flawed. It is something that you were predis uh, predisposed to. And as a result, that predisposition then created for you this opportunity to get hooked on something that you don't think you can stop. I wholeheartedly agree. I tell my adolescent clients who are struggling with addiction or those who are like in that phase of experimenting and need some education about what they're getting into. Um, a lot of my teenage clients are of the, you know, why not, you know, marijuana is legalized, although not legalized for them. Why not try it? Eventually I will, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Culture doesn't see it as a big deal. Um, alcohol, probably a little less so, but when you're experimenting with one drug, nine times out of 10, you're going to experiment with others as well. And so I tell them, look, if you have a biological parent who has struggled with addiction, you have a 50% chance of having a struggle with addiction or becoming an addict should you decide to start using. I said, if you have two parents who have struggled with that, you're statistically, it jumps to about 90%. Your yep. brain is very predisposed to like it, which is what you were just explaining. In my personal experience, I've had, um, my mom's side of the family, um, specifically on my grandfather, so my um, maternal uh, um, grandfather's side and my mom's side, that um, they struggled greatly with alcoholism. It actually killed my grandfather and a um, series of drug-related activities and illnesses also um, killed my mother's two brothers who were all younger than her. She's the only remaining kid in her family still alive. Addiction played a huge role in mm -hmm the loss of life. And I remember around um, Christmas time, several years ago, um, someone made some eggnog for me and it had some brandy in it. And I will say it was very, very good. And I had a large, there was a lot of it. And so I drank it kind of little by little. And the timing of the day I drank it was in the evening. It just so happened to be, because I'm not going to drink it in the morning before I go to work. 
I came home coming down from a typically hectic day. I was teaching at that time. I'd have a little and I noticed that it helped me, you know, relax. I'd never had alcohol that consistently, but in this season I had it in the house. And I remember my mom saying to me that she got kind of a check in her spirit to tell me and, you know, thank the Lord for the guidance of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to tell, basically to say to me, you need to stop. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to stop. It was really good. And I liked the effect of it. Um, But I did, I heeded that warning because I knew enough at the time, one, to know that the Holy Spirit knows what he's talking about, but then on the other side, that it would be really, really easy for me to get hooked because I like it. My brain is in the space where it's more predisposed to like it. I understand why there are happy hours. I understand why there are things we use to relax because they work. Um, One of the professors that taught in my um, drug and alcohol program, he said, you know, drugs of abuse, you know, the the tough part is, is that they work so well. He's like, we're not abusing toenail fungus medication. We're abusing things, (laughs) you know, that activate um, uh, parts of our brain that um, give us that beneficial effect. And so it's really hard to just stop. There's a space, a very decisive space in there, but it is very, very, very difficult to stop because everything is wired to continue to pursue things that feel good. Yeah. So one thing that addiction does is um, fires up dopamine receptors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dopamine is the feel good chemical of the brain. And many of the receptors are in what's called the nucleus accumbens Mm -hmm. of the brain. And once that gets tickled and they like what they're experiencing, then biochemically your brain's looking for more dopamine. Mm -hmm. And that feeling you were talking about becomes an alluring thing. I want to feel like that again. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. So the dopamine says, Tiffany, you know how to do that? Yes. You need that. And it's harmless. You're not getting a DUI. You're not driving drunk. You're not yelling at anyone. You're not... You're not hiding alcohol in your closet. You're not drinking during the day. You're being responsible. It's legal for you. Exactly. And so then, now little by little, we start to build tolerances Mm -hmm. and push limits and tolerances. Uh, Eventually, I could get up to a 12-pack and on some occasions, a fifth of vodka. And still function. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of that, but that's, I push those tolerances uh, before I quit. And, you know, that, that's just a reminder then that it isn't, I just stop it kind of thing. This is something more complex that people need to address. So you need to address the clinical, the spiritual, the behavioral. I think those are the three things that have to work together to help people. And we'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead uh, about, you know, what to do about it. Absolutely. And another thing that makes addiction, you know, or just the ability to just not stop, you know, such an issue is the idea that our brain doesn't forget. So if there is something that, you know, tickled those dopamine receptors and it felt really good, we are not wired to forget those things. Even if we push it to the side and we choose other behaviors to, you know, again, tickle those receptors. Yes. If they don't work, 
as good as well, I should say, or better than <laughs> those previous behaviors, mm -hmm. it's really hard to convince us, convince our brains at least, that we should do something different. Because this works so well. It does. Dopamine remembers and it remembers well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, uh, you know, one way that you start to have an awareness is, is to begin to, um, and you're not going to like this, but heed the voices of those that love and care about you mm -hmm. and then start to think introspectively. Um, that's why the first step of AA's 12 steps so eloquently puts it when it says we admitted that our life was powerless over alcohol mm -hmm. and that our lives have become unmanageable. Now, I'll say more about that in the coming broadcast, but I want to lay down an initial foundation with that because a lot of people see powerlessness equals weakness. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially in the evangelical world, I, I get that feedback. That's not the case. Actually, in this case, powerlessness means you win. Mm -hmm. Every time I admit I'm powerless over alcohol, and I've been in situations where I could have drank over the last, you know, 45 years, um, is that I found myself when I, when I employed the positive refusal skill of, I choose not to, I'm saying I'm powerless, but now I'm in control. Mm -hmm. So it's a paradox of sorts that when I admit that I am powerless, then I can employ a positive refusal skill that says, I choose not to, I choose. Mm -hmm. I'm in control of me because my life had become unmanageable. So if I begin to rationalize, I spent a lot of years, it'll be okay. Or, you know, I began to marginalize, uh, you know, how long it's been and I can do this now. Uh, I'm responsible. I'm a professional. I'm well-educated, blah, blah, blah. Um, now I'm in trouble. And we usually in, in 12 step work like to link one and four right off the bat mm -hmm. as you work through each step. And four is we made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. So if I can look in the mirror and look deep inside of me and see what I need to change, even though I don't want to look at it. I mean, you know, I've been trying to lose weight. I don't like looking in the mirror, getting on the scale because I'm not satisfied where I'm at yet, but mm -hmm. reality is reality. That's where I am. Yeah. And so I got to be honest about that. So the whole idea of, you know, looking at the 12 steps, which is something we want to talk about and how they incorporate into spirituality will also be a way in which we can help people find their path out of addiction. I think that's huge. I look forward to that conversation. Before we go, I want to swing back around to one idea, and that's the idea of being a, a functional addict. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were preparing for this broadcast, I mentioned that that was something that I always like wrestled with or took little issue with because my question is, you know, how functional are you or how functional were you? How functional do you really think you are? Especially because your level of awareness about how the behaviors that you're engaged in are impacting your life and your relationships with other people is completely diminished because you're using a substance or engaging in a behavior where a lot of negatives are accumulating because that's the nature of it. So how functional can you actually be? I think the functionality is 
rooted in your own personal rationale. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're not looking at the things you're talking about. You're looking at the biggies. Mm. So this is what I used to say. (laughs) I don't have a DUI. Mm. What are you talking about? It isn't interfering with my work. I knew enough not to drink before work. And I knew to be sober before the next day. Mm. Not a problem. Basics. Right. Um, Have you drove drunk? Yes, but. I didn't get caught. I didn't get caught and I stay in the lines. I never wrecked a car. Uh, I never yelled at anybody. I was a happy drunk. (laughs) I never hit anybody. I never thought I wanted to fight. Um, I just minded my own business and was Mr. Comedian. Mm. So what do you mean? I can't be a functional alcoholic. This is working. It's working for me. And yet I'm about to lose my wife to be. I've alienated myself from many of my family members. Even some of my friends who drank were getting disgusted with where I was at with it. Wasn't seeing all of that, but I was employing these other biggies that I call them. And since those were not negative, I had convinced myself I was being pretty functional. When I worked um, as an intern at an inpatient adolescent male um, uh, facility for um, just substance use disorders, um, I ran several groups. And in one of the groups, I asked them to identify or to kind of even draw or paint the picture that they had in their mind of what someone who is an addict is. And oftentimes it was the person who was maybe strung out on crack cocaine, who had, you know, stolen their mama's television, who was um, maybe prostituting themselves on the street. That was their picture. They were so broken down. They looked like life had hit them hard. Mm -hmm. And although life had hit quite a few of them hard, the reasons that they were there at the same time, they maybe weren't the picture that they had in their mind of someone Mm -hmm. who was truly an addict. So in a lot of their minds, it was still very much so in control and it hadn't become a big deal at that point. No. And I was working at General Motors. Um, by the time I was living alone, I'd been at GM a uh, year and a half. I got in when I was 18, not long after I turned 18. And um, I had uh, disposable income, no debt, managed my money well. Um, I was doing great. What are you talking about? You know, it's the whole idea that you can set up a different reality for yourself. That's the key. Mm -hmm. It's not reality. It's your reality. You set up your own reality by your rationale, by your, your faulty emotional processing. And the fact that all these other big things aren't happening to you and you can believe and deceive yourself into believing that I got this. Mm -hmm. It's not a problem. Wow. I think that's huge. I'll leave you with one thing that um, my professor also said that stuck with me over the years. And he said, we don't destroy our lives for the fun of it. He said, if we operated that way, then we wouldn't make it as a species. (laughs) He's like, so in order to continue to do the destructive things, you know, that, you know, those who are struggling with an addiction often do, we have to tell ourselves things to keep it going so that that um that's powerful yeah that um lie that really that delusion that's painted you know you know keeps us from losing it like there has to be some support 
to it. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, that's interesting. And so part of treatment, which we'll address again in a later episode, you know, really is breaking down that lie that we have so craftily, you know, constructed to support our habit. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to this conversation, Tiffany. I am too. Um, I'm passionate about this. I don't take for granted that I have the number of years behind me that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not proud of that in the wrong way. I realize by the grace of God, there I go. Uh, but I also know I had to have skin in the game to get to this point. And it's going to require that uh, for anyone who's listening to us who struggles mm-hmm. or for family members to understand it better so that they don't think make things worse while yet keeping their own boundaries, which is going to be another broadcast about what the family does in situations. So folks, we're just kind of opening the door to a lot of things here today, but that's why we said multiple broadcasts, because it's our firm belief that not only because we're trained in it and we understand it, but because we realize it is indeed a societal problem and we want to help you address it. We do. So stay tuned for our upcoming um, episodes regarding addiction and the variety of topics that we'll cover um, underneath that umbrella. So we hope today that um, we got off to a good start and hopefully something that we shared um, will make a difference in your life and the life of your loved ones. Amen. (laughs) And as always, dear folks, God bless and shalom. The information contained in our podcast and on our social media pages is for informational purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room.